Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and thank you for joining us. President Joe Biden scored the first big win of his presidency last week with passage of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, full of badly needed help for middle-class Americans, single moms, small businesses, and restaurants hammered by the coronavirus, as well as a lot of other people. But no matter how critical or far-reaching or how popular it was, the stimulus package won with the support of Democrats only. Not one single Republican in the House or the Senate, not one voted for it. And that doesn't bode well for chances of getting Congress to act on other important issues like infrastructure, immigration, or climate change, especially with the Senate split 50-50. So is there any hope at all for bipartisan action on any issue? Is it finally time to get rid of the filibuster? If so, how? Joining us today, Norm Ornstein, one of the leading experts on Congress, emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and co-author with Thomas Mann of the great book about Congress called It's Even Worse Than It Looks. Norm Ornstein, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Good to talk to you. It's always great to talk to you, Bill. So, Norm, uh, I have here in my hands a copy (laughs) nine years ago. You wrote a de- you and Thomas Mann wrote a devastating a critique of the United States Congress called "It's Even Worse Than It Looks." Nine years ago, Norm, looking at it today, has it gotten any better since? Uh, you know, I uh, joked uh, after we did the paperback version of that, which is "It's Even Worse Than It Was," that the next one would be "Run for Your Lives." <laughs> And I'll tell you, Bill, if Donald Trump had managed to win re-election one way or the other, uh, that's where we would have been. Uh, But, you know, the reality is it's certainly better uh, not to have uh, an autocrat, uh, nativist, racist regime in place. Um, But we've still got lots of big challenges ahead. And while I believe that Uh, Joe Biden is the right person in the right place at the right time to be president. And everything that's happened in the nearly two months uh, since he was inaugurated, uh, I think, proves that to be true. Uh, The battle from here after this uh, $1.9 trillion package, transformational package, is going to get fierce and uphill. And the fact that Congress is the Senate is looking at, is split 50-50. Does that make it more likely or less likely they'll be able to work in a bipartisan manner? Well, let's put it this way. If it were 50-50 with a Vice President Pence, he'd be in big trouble. Um, That it's 50-50, 
has pluses and minuses. In one sense, the minds of the 50 Democratic senators are concentrated on a reality, starting with uh, the fact that they aren't going to get any Republicans for anything significant, that they're going to have to keep all of their troops together. And it remains quite remarkable that this sweeping package, which includes things lifting half of children in, in poverty out of that level uh, among them, that they were able to get everybody from Bernie Sanders to Joe Manchin to hang on, and including after, of course, the minimum wage was taken out of the package. But at the same time, you need all 50 Democrats. And even if you had 56 Democrats, 57 Democrats, so long as the filibuster rule remains in place, none of the big and important things that need to be done would get done. So mm -hmm. that's the challenge. The challenge is the Senate even more than it is keeping every single Democrat in the Senate together or keeping a very narrow margin in the House from falling apart. Well, it wasn't so long ago. We remember well, they're still around, Trent Lott and Tom Daschle, uh, able to work together. Uh, and this was, of course, what Joe Biden was known for. But uh, I wonder, Norm, whether the days of a Joe Biden uh, reaching across the aisle and, and getting things done, whether those days are gone forever, or is it possible to bring them back? Forever is a long time. Yes. <laughs> uh, but in, uh, in the short run, uh, I just don't see it with a caveat. Smaller things things that don't have the great national significance, things maybe in some instances where a few of the Republicans in the Senate who are a little nervous about 2022, and uh, they have a lot more seats up than Democrats, and at this point, uh, 14 incumbents running for uh, re-election, or maybe they'll be able to agree. Uh, you could imagine that on... Uh, perhaps a criminal justice reform mm -hmm. bill or a mental mm -hmm. health policy bill, uh, maybe even, although I'm skeptical, ultimately getting enough votes for a universal background checks bill. But on the big things and on most things, we're not going to get Republican votes. And I doubt whether there'll be more than one or two token ones when uh, you get a nervous uh, person uh, who's given... Um, a green light by Mitch McConnell, knowing that it won't make any difference in the outcomes. Mm -hmm. If the uh, basic battle is to get 60 votes, not 50 votes, and you have a Republican Party acting like a parliamentary minority, uniting in opposition to everything of significance, forget about it. And I'll tell you, Bill, you know, in some ways, the reconciliation process that was used to get the uh, big uh, COVID package through uh, is a proof of that. So, you know, I did a thought experiment. Republicans knew that it was almost guaranteed that Joe Biden was going to have 50 Democrats in the Senate willing to vote for the $1.9 trillion package. They might make a few internal adjustments and that Kamala Harris would be able to cast the tie-breaking vote. So, if you really wanted a compromise, knowing that reality, and with a president who made it clear that his preference was to get 60 or more votes, what are you going to do? 
you're going to propose an alternative of, say, 1.4 trillion. Right, right. 1.5 trillion. You're going to propose that maybe you cut the amount going to state and local governments from 350 billion to 200 billion, and that um, you alter some of the formulas. Uh, and then you'll sit down, and ultimately you're going to get a compromise of around 1.7 trillion with some of the other changes. And you will have accomplished quite a lot from your own perspective. When they offered the 10 Republicans $600 billion, less than a third of what was in the Biden package, right from the get-go, it was clear this was not serious. It was for show. And if they're not going to compromise on something like that, where they actually have something to gain from it, and instead, they want to criticize Biden for not really being bipartisan like he promised and uh, that the bill was done on a partisan basis. Uh, if that's your goal, you're going to behave the way they behaved. And we know that's the goal. Right. So as you point out, this was a transformational piece of legislation, right? I mean, there is so much in there that we still are maybe not even aware of, but but you know, money for for middle-class families of 1400 bucks, money for kids lifting them out of poverty, money for restaurants to reopen, money for states and cities to, um, to, to deal with vaccine distribution, on and on, and yet not one Republican vote in the House or the Senate. So what lesson does Joe Biden or Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi or any of us take learn from that experience? Well, you know, in some ways, the overall lesson is clear. Uh, the game plan that uh, Mitch McConnell used in the first two years of the Obama administration, in the first two years after his reelection, is the game plan they're using now. And it worked back then. Right. And that is you unite in opposition to everything, you block what you can, you delegitimize what you can't, and you delegitimize the president. And they won more seats in the House than they had in 100 years in 2010 and won the majority and won the Senate in 2014. It defies reason that they would do anything different, that they would put the needs of the country first. So you've got that. And then it becomes a question of what tactics you use. If I'm Joe Biden, I'm going to continue to offer uh, Republicans a seat at the table understanding that it's not likely to work. If I'm Chuck Schumer, knowing that I need to get support from Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, Dianne Feinstein, and others who want to be sure that there is a legitimate role for the minority, on some of these issues, I am going to do robust hearings with real debate, with uh, amendments allowed, including by Republicans, and I'll do the same thing on the floor, and let the proof be in their behavior. If we see that happening and they still all vote in unison against, it's powerful evidence sooner rather than later that we need to change the Senate rules. Right. That gets us to the filibuster. I mean, first of all, uh, and again, here on the Bill Press Pod today, we're talking with Norm Ornstein from the American Enterprise Institute, uh, who knows more about the workings of the United States Congress than anybody I know. Uh, and has written a lot about it. Norm, tell us, first of all, I'm a, 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 it's important that people understand, the filibuster is not in the Constitution, right? So how do we get stuck with it? 
<laughs> it's a an interesting story uh, in history. So there is a procedure that only the wonks understand who follow parliamentary procedure that's there in almost every legislature, and it's a motion on the previous question. If you move the previous question, that means you get a majority vote that says, yes, enough debate, we're moving on to a vote, mm -hmm. and we'll act on whatever policy is up. The House and Senate originally both had this motion on the previous question. And then in 1805, Vice President Aaron Burr, about to leave office, uh, not having to worry anymore about Alexander Hamilton, <laughs> um, went to the Senate in a kind of farewell address and said, I've been the president of the Senate and I've presided over many of these sessions. And it's clear to me that your rule book, you built in a lot of stuff that's unnecessary. They're extraneous things. I've got some suggestions for how to clean up your rule book. And the members of the Senate said, eh, okay. One of those was eliminating from the Senate rules the motion on the previous question. Nobody really thought about the consequences of doing this. For quite a while, it didn't seem to have any consequences because people didn't act as if uh, they uh, had any understanding of it. And then ultimately, members realize that if you don't have a way of having a majority through a motion say, okay, that's enough debate, we're going to move to a vote. Any one or any number of senators could stand up on the floor and just keep talking and keep action from taking place. Mm -hmm. It didn't happen that often, but it happened in a very severe way in 1917 when five senators did a kind of tag team, staying on the floor and talking to keep the Navy from being prepared for what was soon to be America's entrance into the First World War. And Woodrow Wilson was very upset, called them a little band of willful men. And ultimately, after this went on for a very long time, the Senate changed its rules and brought in what is known as Rule 22, the filibuster rule, which at that point was intended to be able to stop the debate and move forward by saying that if two-thirds of those present and voting in the Senate went for closure, which they called from the French cloture, then you could stop the debate and move to a vote. And that was the beginning of the modern era filibuster. And it, it was two-thirds at that time, right? Two-thirds of those, and it's really important to note, present and voting, not two-thirds of the Senate. Right. Uh, when did it change to 60? So the change came in 1975. And there, it was another interesting little bit of history involving a vice president and the presiding officer. Uh, the president of the Senate, the vice president of the United States, was Nelson Rockefeller. Mm -hmm. And Rockefeller shook the Senate when he declared from the presiding officer's chair that the Senate actually was not a continuing body, meaning that the rules just continued in place and that the only way you could change them was to overcome a filibuster, meaning two-thirds of the Senate uh, present in voting, but that 
it was just like any other legislature, a new session convened, you did new rules, and they could be done by a majority. And both parties, not real happy with how that might play out, sat down and they compromised. And the uh-huh. compromise was to move from a threshold of two-thirds of those present and voting to three-fifths of the entire Senate. And it's important to say here, Bill, that that provision has been widely misunderstood. I don't think they understood at the time the unintended consequences of what they were going to do. And uh, I still see it in pieces written about it that say they reduce the numbers from two-thirds to three-fifths. But that's not what happened. They went from two-thirds of those present and voting to three-fifths of the entire Senate. And that shifted the uh, burden from the minority, because if the minority didn't show up, then a much lower number could have brought cloture and moved to a vote mm-hmm. to the majority needing 60 of the 100 senators. And that's been uh, the burden ever since. And while it didn't matter a whole lot in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, because the norms of the body were, we don't filibuster very often, and we only do it when it's of something of real national significance, that moved to Mitch McConnell when Barack Obama became president, actually even starting before that, uh, the last two years of the Bush administration. But McConnell using that 60-vote threshold to filibuster everything because the majority couldn't stop it, and the minority didn't have to do much of anything except say, we're going to filibuster. Uh, and as people must understand today, it's as you say, it's 60 votes. You don't have to talk. You don't have to stand up there uh, or read the telephone book or whatever, and nobody has to sit there and listen. It's just a de facto, you got 60 votes, it's in. Yeah, and you know, the one other change that mattered here before, and you know, it, we are old enough to remember, uh, you and I, uh, those storied filibusters on uh, civil rights bills and voting rights bills by the segregationist uh, Democrats from the South, Strom Thurmond talking for 24 hours and the like, that were done uh, you know, before the, the rules change. But because they'd have to bring the entire Senate to a halt to go round the clock, Mike Mansfield, the majority leader who succeeded Lyndon Johnson, said, you know what, let's have a two-track system. We'll do other business while this is going on. Mm-hmm. And that made a difference in, in the dynamic. But the big thing was to move from the president voting standard. And just to give you a, a little story, I worked on change here with Al Franken when he was in the Senate. One day he said to a Republican colleague, see you on Monday. And the Republican colleague said, no, I'm not going to be here. It's just a cloture vote. I don't have to be here, but you do. And that tells another part of the story. The minority only needed one or two people around just to make sure no mischief occurred. But the majority wasn't going to get anywhere unless they could get 60 votes. And for the minority, you didn't have to go through any discomfort at all. You just said, I'm going to deny unanimous consent. You're going to have to filibuster. You're going to have to wait two days after I tell you this to file a cloture motion so that you can begin to have votes to try and bring about cloture and move to a vote. And then we can spend weeks on this using up time on the floor. And then even if you do get cloture, which they did because they would use it on minor bills and some things that would even get unanimous support, they allowed 30 hours of post-cloture debate, but they didn't even have to debate that. So you could soak up all kinds of floor time 
and nobody in the minority had to pay any price at all for it. Now, as you pointed out earlier, that the fact of the filibuster does stand as perhaps the chief impediment to uh, action that um, the Congress might be able to take on other important issues like infrastructure, like immigration, uh, like voting rights, go, climate change, go down the list. So can the Senate change the filibuster now? And what would it take to change it or to kill it? So we've seen two changes in the filibuster rule since that big change in 1975. The first one was when Majority Leader Harry Reid, during Obama's presidency, was basically pushed into changing the rule by Mitch McConnell, who told Reid and Obama that there was no way that Senate Republicans would let anybody serve on the D.C. Court of Appeals, the D.C. Circuit, the most important circuit that deals with presidential powers, regulatory matters, and the like. No matter how qualified, when there were multiple vacancies there, because they had a historic conservative majority, and he just wasn't going to let that change. And after months of working around that with you know top flight nominees, Harry Reid finally said, I have no option but to change the rules so that it's a simple majority for judges. We'll keep it below the Supreme Court. And also for executive nominees, because the Republicans were filibustering many of those just to screw up the Obama presidency. So he went about it in a kind of uh, interesting way. Uh, you can't just change the rules in the middle of the Senate. And if you do it in the traditional way, as I pointed out earlier, uh, it could be filibustered. The rules change itself. So what Reid did was something that Republican parliamentary experts had come up with but never applied during the Bush presidency when they were upset with Democratic filibusters of some of the Bush judicial nominees. And that, it gets us deep into the wonky weeds but you'd have a, a motion to move to a vote on an appeals court judge, and the presiding officer would say, um, no, uh, we're in the middle of a uh, filibuster. And a senator would say, well, I'll appeal the ruling of the chair. And an appeal of the ruling of the chair can succeed with a majority of votes. Uh -huh. So they did a simple majority that said, no, actually, uh, the threshold is not 60, but 50, uh, 51 to be uh, more accurate. And then uh, when Mitch McConnell became the leader and Donald Trump became the president, uh, or Mitch McConnell as leader when Donald Trump became president, said, we're going to use the same tactic and apply it to the Supreme Court. So it'll take a simple majority to fill uh, vacancies on the Supreme Court, which, of course, is what has given us uh, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. So you can use the same way, uh, kind of twists and turns of the parliamentary process in the Senate to make a rules change now. But the key, of course, is you're going to need enough votes, 50 at least, to overcome the ruling of the chair. And you would agree that, uh, at least if we listen to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, uh, and even Joe Biden, although he doesn't have a vote in the Senate, there are not 50 votes today to kill the filibuster, correct? 
no question that moving to um, a threshold of 50 votes or 51 votes is uh, for legislation simply does not have a majority support among Democrats in the Senate. Doesn't have every Democrat, which is what you need. Okay. What are the other options? Uh, I think in one of your articles, you talk about if you don't kill it, you could gut it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I actually, uh, the headline in the Washington Post is not one I would have chosen only for tactical reasons. Let's say reform it. <laughs> you could reform it. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I've watched and read very carefully what Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, Dianne Feinstein and others have said about why they don't want to eliminate the 60-vote threshold uh, or the uh, supermajority or the ability of a minority to block things. They want debate and deliberation. They want ways to encourage uh, uh, bipartisan support for things. Uh, so years ago, my uh, preferred option, uh, back when we still didn't have 50 votes to eliminate the filibuster, was to flip the numbers. Instead of saying, you've got to have 60 people on the floor voting to stop debate, the majority having that hurdle to overcome, let's put the onus on the minority where it belongs. You need 41 votes to continue debate. Mm -hmm. At any time when you can't muster the 41, that's it. It's over. You move to a vote and to act. And I would couple that with a requirement what uh, Jeff Merkley, the senator from Oregon, has proposed for a number of years, the so-called talking filibuster, and say, you need the 41, and you got to be on the floor debating it while this issue is up, and you have to make that debate germane. In other words, you have to be talking about the thing that you are trying to stop. Uh, and that, I think, would put a pretty heavy burden on the minority. You could go round the clock, you could send them up to those lumpy cots outside the Senate floor <laughs> that uh, we remember with pictures from when Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats uh, thwarted progress towards voting rights for African-Americans. Um, and, you know, you're going to have to get uh, 86 and 87-year-olds like Chuck Grassley and Jim Inhofe and Dick Shelby to be rousted out of those lumpy cots at four in the morning to come for a vote. And if they don't show up, then it's over for them. Uh, and while they may be able to hold on for some time, it's not clear they could hold on forever. And if the majority plays hardball, that means you're going to have to bring the business to a halt for days or weeks. But also, you can schedule votes with more limited notice. You can uh, schedule a session, which will include votes on a uh, Monday or on a weekend, and maybe not let uh, the minority party know until the Friday before uh, when they're already back home or making plans. There are ways in which you can make it very difficult for them. And to say, gee, that wouldn't be nice. I remember, as you must as well, when the uh, Affordable Care Act was uh, in the balance. Oh, yeah. And the Republicans demanded that they get all 60 of those votes. They wouldn't provide anybody as a courtesy because uh, Robert Byrd, the 60th vote, was uh, in uh, bed on his deathbed, in effect, uh, almost literally. And Democrats, to get that 60th vote, had to 
take him out of a dire situation on a gurney into right. a wheelchair onto the Senate floor where shaking with anger, he shook his fist at the Republicans and said, shame, shame, shame. You can play hardball to accomplish your goals and you can get a lot done. If, could you, I think the other thing that uh, Senator Merkley has suggested is making an exception for one issue only, like voting rights. Uh, yeah. Is that in the cards? You know, uh, the, and these are not mutually exclusive things, mm -hmm. uh, Bill. Um, you know, I've, I've offered a number of alternatives um, that change the threshold uh, or that just return to a present voting standard as a general matter on legislation. I think it's important that you put the burden on the minority where it belongs. But uh, for something as critical right now as uh, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, um, which are, uh, you know, in dire need of being passed, even as we speak in states around the country, Republican legislators and governors are implementing draconian voter suppression uh, elements, uh, basically just to keep Democrats and especially people of color from voting. Um, we need to do something, not for partisan purposes, but to ensure that every eligible voter has the right to vote. Uh, and if that can't be done through normal procedures, uh, the Constitution explicitly gives power in Article I to Congress to regulate the time, manner, and place of federal elections. And setting out as a separate category that should not be blocked by a minority trying to maintain its own illegitimate power, uh, a uh, majority threshold, is perfectly uh, reasonable in a lot of ways to do. But let's face it, the only way we're going to get that done with Manchin, Cinema, and others is to do what Manchin has asked for, which is you bring up these bills, you have robust hearings, you have an open amendment process for Democrats and Republicans alike, you do the same thing on the floor. And if that doesn't work and they continue to filibuster, then you've got to turn to a plan B. Got it. Uh, Norm Arnstein is our guest here on the Bill Press Pod. We're going to take a quick break and come back and finish with uh, finish our conversation uh, here with Norm on this uh, this edition of the Bill Press Pod, talking about uh, the United States Senate particularly and the filibuster. I want to get Norm's thoughts when we come back on where the Republican Party goes next. Today, friends, during this break, I want to remind you of our encouragement to join one of the organizations that's really fighting hard against these efforts at voter suppression around the country. We've identified 253 bills now pending in 43 different states to make it harder, not easier, for people to vote, especially people of color, people who might vote Democratic. Two organizations, Fair Fight, started by Stacey Abrams down in Georgia. Their website is fairfight.com. The other organization, Let America Vote at letamericavote.org. Please check them out. Fair Fight, Let America Vote. Sign up. Do everything you can to stop these voter suppression efforts in your state and every other state. It's so important. And thank you. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. 
Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back on today's Bill Press Pod, the podcast with Norm Ornstein from the American Enterprise Institute. So, Norm, uh, you know, kind of a a sub-theme of our conversation about the United States Senate, the Congress, the filibuster, is the Republican Party today – the so-called party of Lincoln, does it still exist today? Uh, or will the party of Lincoln ever recover from the days of Donald Trump? How do you see it? I'm going to be blunt here, Bill. I don't think it's even a political party anymore. Really? I think the Republican Party has morphed into a cult. It's a cult that preceded uh, Donald Trump, but it's become a cult of personality. I think it has elements of a religious cult, a fanatical religious cult. It's driven by a theology and not an ideology anymore. You know, an ideology that you want to balance a budget doesn't include, uh, especially at a time uh, with a uh, growing uh, economy, a uh, huge tax cut for the rich uh, and corporations that does not Uh, do anything other than drain deficits and debt and redistribute income in the worst uh, fashion. Um, uh, A theology says we want tax cuts, uh, the bigger, the better, anytime, anyplace. Um, If you're a fiscal conservative and you have an ideology, you're going to want to have a balance that includes enough revenue to pay for the government that you have. If you believe in a smaller government, and you have an ideology that's a conservative one, you're going to recognize that there are parts of government that are absolutely necessary and they should be uh, able to operate with efficiency and expertise. 
If you're a theology, you believe that all government is bad. If any part of it works, it ought to be blown up. Uh, and uh, uh, if it's working, people are going to like it and they'll want more of it. And you believe that if all government were eliminated, freedom would uh, emerge and people would be happy for it. And that all flies in the face of facts. But if you have a theology and facts challenge that theology, you are going to attack the scientists and the experts who give you those facts. So we've got that. The core part of a uh, cult is that the members will do things that they might not otherwise do out of the fear of being shunned or excommunicated. And I think that's been a sentiment that's played for a number of years. And of course, theology notwithstanding, if you have a cult leader, um, whatever the cult leader says becomes the new theology. If the old theology included Russia's evil and the cult leader says, no, Russia's great, you say, okay, Russia's great. Uh, if the uh, cult leader says, you know what, I want more government uh, because it'll be good for me, you say, okay, we'll have more government. And it goes on and on. And what's happened is, even as Trump has lost, the fanatical element of this cult has gotten stronger. And of course, it now includes a much more open level of racism, Ron Johnson being a great recent example, and an embrace of people who thrive on conspiracy theories and uh, what are pretty overtly un-American attitudes. And, you know, if you go down to Louisiana, here's one good example for you. Bill Cassidy, a senator from Louisiana, Republican, who's quite conservative, voted to convict Donald Trump on the impeachment count because the evidence was clear that he had incited an insurrection. Within a day, unanimously, the Louisiana Republican Party condemned him. That same Republican Party a few years ago refused to condemn David Duke. Mm -hmm. If you have a group of people who will not condemn a David Duke, but will condemn a Bill Cassidy, what more do you need to know about what kind of uh, outfit you're dealing with? And so people, uh, you and I know them all, um, call them friends, or at least acquaintances. Yeah. People like Bill Crystal, people like Jeff Flake, Charlie Sykes, Christine Todd Whitman are all saying, no, that's not us. You know, we're not part of that. Uh, we're going to bring the Republican Party back. They're wasting their time. I don't want them to waste their, uh, well, let's put it this way. I want them to fight back. The fact is the country needs to vibrant, problem-solving-oriented, law and process-abiding political parties. We're not going to do well if we have one fringe cult and one party. And what would make that worse is that at some point, if you have any semblance of a democracy and a voting process, the party's majorities are going to switch. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we can't afford to have um, a Trumpian party. And remember, uh, you know, I'm skeptical that Donald Trump will run again. I think this is all another part of the grift to get more money. You know, just reading about what they did with the Save the Dog uh, effort, millions of dollars that went into uh, Trump properties and into Trump relatives' hands. Um, you know, he's doing all this to raise money. 
But look who will be in the running for the Republican nomination in 2024. It's the Tom Cottons and Ted Cruz's and Josh Hawley's who are going to be out there saying, you know what, I'm just like Trump, except I'm younger, smarter, and tougher. And that's not what you want. So uh, it may not be the kind of uh, party with views that uh, you or I would be particularly comfortable in. Think of uh, uh, Liz Cheney's worldview and ideology as being what would be dominant if it were back. But it if it's a party that still believes that the nation's problems need to be solved, that you uh, do it through the regular order, that you don't do it through corruption, and we're finding more and more uh, violations of the emoluments clauses in the Constitution now, some really dirty stuff, apparently with Trump and Indonesia, God knows where else. He traded America's uh, national interest for his own uh, economic interests. Um, if you have a party where you can fight out policy issues on a reasonable traditional turf, that's much better. And so I want the Bill Crystals and the Charlie Sykeses and yes, the Liz Cheneys of the world and all the never Trumpers who are out there, even if they were anathema to us in the past, to be fighting the good fight. It's going to take a while. And frankly, I think the key now is the 2022 midterm elections. Mm -hmm. If Republicans game plan that worked in 2010 and 2014, before that in 1994, if it works again and they recapture the House, the Senate, or both, then the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Boebert's and Madison Cawthorns of the world are going to be in the ascendancy. And the opportunity to gain traction for honest, non-racist, non-crazy uh, people, uh, you know, will be gone. Right. And Kevin McCarthy, right, is, is placing all of his bets on Donald Trump carrying the day and Donald Trump supporting candidates carrying the day in 2022. Uh, One of the most stunning things to me we now have this story, which was reported, of course, by a courageous Republican congresswoman from Washington state and uh, confirmed by others that in the middle of the insurrection, when terrorists were uh, approaching the House chamber and members feared for their lives, knowing that um, you weren't going to have uh, these vicious, uh, violent terrorists stop a member and say, are you a Democrat or a Republican? Kevin McCarthy desperately called Donald Trump and said, we need help and we need it now. And Trump said, uh, hey, they're just Antifa. And McCarthy said, no, they're your people. And Trump said to him, well, Kevin, I guess they just cared more about the election than you did as he refused to provide help. Right. And McCarthy, by all accounts, was just angry and swore at Trump. And uh, lots of members saw this. That same Kevin McCarthy, who then hours later voted that the election had been rigged, two weeks later goes down to Mar-a-Lago and begs Trump for his uh, donor list, but also makes up with him. That's what Kevin McCarthy is. And that's why I regularly call him the worst House leader in history. All right. 
Norm Ornstein, great, great conversation today. Great work as always. Uh, are you working on another book? I don't want to do another book right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. Uh, well, that will have to wait. All right. Let's see how it shakes out. Then, then, then we'll wait for the book. Norm, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, can people follow you on Twitter? And if so, how? It's at Norm Ornstein. At Norm Ornstein. I should know that because I, because I follow you. All right. Norm, thanks so much. We'll talk again sure, soon. Well, you right. bet. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for today's podcast with Norm Ornstein from the American Enterprise Institute. Again, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back on Friday with our weekly roundtable. In the meantime, yeah, we're making a lot of progress on COVID, but it ain't over yet. So uh, listen to Dr. Fauci, listen to President Biden, wear the mask, practice your social distancing, take good care of yourselves, and then come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod and Friday's Roundtable.